Re is a podcast brought to you by New Heights Church, a church located in Mission, B.C., focused on being church with mission in mind. We acknowledge that we gather, live, play, and worship on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded territory of the Stolo First Nation. We are your hosts, Greg Elford and Jess Steffick, and this is the Re Podcast, the prefix that hopes for more than we had before. Unfortunately, you know, the very first text in our Bible becomes a litmus test for people about whether you're in or out or whether you're orthodox or not, whether we will, you know, trust your reading of scripture or not, or trust anything you say or not. Um, And, you know, we don't get very far in the Bible with that. Do you know what time of the day you were born? How about which hospital? Have you heard the story of your first breaths? This month, the Repodcast is focusing in on the theme of origin stories, their power, and specifically the opening lines of scripture and what they have to say to us. Today is part one of two with our guest expert, Jerry Pauls. Jerry is a professor of theology and Old Testament at Columbia Bible College, who opens up the topic of how to read the Bible when to make space for different perspectives, and specifically what's going on in the Genesis creation story. Welcome, Jerry. We're very excited to be having this conversation with you today. Um, Just to intro you a little bit, I'll intro to you right to your face. Um, Jerry is a professor at Columbia Bible College. He teaches theology. He's got a specialty in Old Testament biblical studies, and I know he is loved by many of the students at Columbia. Maybe unloved by some, but we can get into that later. (laughs) Um, But definitely has had a a big impact in my own journey through theology. So welcome here, Jerry. Um, I just want to give you a chance to kind of intro yourself. Maybe tell us about how you kind of came to this place of building your life and career around the study of the Bible. Yeah, okay, thanks, Jess um, and, and Greg for having me here. This is, uh, I'm excited about this. Um, as I, I love conversations like this. I don't always love having them recorded, as I've said, but, but I love conversations like this. Um, a, a little about myself, I'm, uh, uh, I'm a father, I'm a husband to Kelly for 32 years we've been married. I have three children. I'm a uh, new grandfather of uh, a baby who is born premature and is about to come home in, in, in the next couple days, so I'm, I'm super excited about that, figuring out what grandfather role looks like in my life. Um, I'm, I'm, I, I like to think I'm a pretty regular guy that likes to do a lot of regular things, um, but I, I happen to have a, a deep passion for, for scripture and for theology, um, so if you want to go for coffee and talk theology and scripture... Um, I'm, I'm all in with that, and you and I have done that quite a few times, Jess, and it's, it's great. I, I, I love scripture. I love theology. Um, in terms of my, my life, um, I, I've got two kind of passions that I look at as, as a bit of a calling. One, one is scripture and, and the study of scripture and teaching scripture, and the other's always been um, young people, youth. My wife and I are, are foster parents for the last 25 years, and I was a youth pastor. 
um, and and now my my job at Columbia, where it's, it's you know coming alongside young people, young adults, um, and and I love bringing those two passions together: the the study of scripture, and and coming alongside young adults or young people who are trying to figure out God, and the Bible and life, and 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 the complexities of that because it. it it's uh, not always an easy piece to figure out. So, so that's probably the, the sweet spot in my life is the, the, the coming together of that love for Scripture and that love for walking beside people and, and having conversations that are uh, deep and meaningful. And um, We've had many of those, Jess, and some of, my f- so, yes, some of my favorites are the ones where you're sitting in my office with tears in your eyes because I know this isn't just an academic conversation. I know that this is this is something that's you know right to the core of your being. These are your 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 beliefs about God and your your faith and your life, and, and those are the best conversations. And I I learned not to get too upset when you have tears in your eyes about these things. At first, I was like, oh, what did I say? But so yeah, so that's that's a little bit about about who I am. Well, I can tell right from the outset that. Uh, you're passionate about the topic, and I think like when you connect with actual people and the topic, it's just obvious how that becomes kind of more important than just an academic exercise. And so as we dive sort of right into the topic here, I'd love if you have uh, a reword for us, and we prepped you ahead of time, not, not by much, but it's a posture for us to have this conversation through. Um, is there a word that you think would be the right posture of how uh, we as a community and people listening might think about um, interpreting the Old Testament, I guess. Yeah, I, I would say reread would be the word. Um, I, I think we, we should always be not just reading Scripture, but rereading Scripture. Um, you know, some of us have read it an awful lot in our lives, um, and we can go there and find the same things over and over and over because that's what we're looking for. But I think the rereading is to be open always to, to seeing new things or, or to reading it in a fresh way, in a new way. And, uh, and that's, that's, you know, again, in my life, that's the sweet spot when I can help people to see new things in Scripture, young people. Or it's, it's even, sometimes it's even cooler when, you, you know, you sit with, um, people who are in their 60s or 70s, which I'm not far from, um, and, and they see new things and they've been reading it for 50, 60 years and, and they get excited. That, that to me, is um, what, what Scripture wants to do for us, is to keep helping us see new things about God and life and the world. So, Jerry, if you were about to give an intro speech into a class about Genesis or maybe how to read the Old Testament, what would you be sure to include or what would you say to that class? Well, that's a good question. Um, I, I think one of the things I would be sure to include is uh, reminding the class that these are very old texts. Um, they're ancient texts. That the Old Testament texts are, you know, 2,500 to, to uh, 3,500 years old, um, written in a different moment and in a different geographical place and cultural place or cultural moment. And I, I think um, that needs to be said because some of the things you're going to read in the Old Testament 
are, are sometimes difficult to understand and sometimes they're just difficult to accept because they, some of them are, you know, some of the pieces are offensive to our modern cultural sensibilities. And so I think reading these and remembering these are ancient texts and, um, you know, John Walton, who I know you guys are familiar with and, and uh, are, are talking about as a, a common um, saying that is very helpful that, you know, the Bible was written for us, but not to us. Um, and I think, you know, we need to remember that, that when we're reading Old Testament texts or New Testament texts, we're reading texts that were written to, you know, in the New Testament, texts that were written to the Romans or to the Galatians um, 2,000 years ago, or we have texts that are written to Judah or Israel um, 3,000 years ago. Um, and we're reading these texts, and yes, while they're God's word and they're speaking to us, they're given first and, and, and foremost to these in, these, in these ancient contexts, to ancient people, and we're looking in over the shoulders of them in some ways and, and, and hearing the truth of these texts. So, so I, I just think that's super important um, for reading Genesis, you know, these early texts in Genesis, for reading, you know, the, the, the law texts, for reading, you know, many of the, the, the texts that have violence in them. Um, we, we need to remember that piece or, or um, yeah, or, or, or they can be really difficult. Yeah, certainly one of the things that we're scratching our heads about these days is cosmology, which I guess, um, what is what actually is cosmology? Yeah, words, cosmology would be, you know, logos is words about the cosmos. So cosmos and logos, words about the cosmos, words about the world. Um, you know, the, the universe, how do we conceptualize and understand the world around us would be cosmology. And so thinking about, you know, our modern cosmology, what we know as modern people and as scientific people about the world and what ancient people knew about the world, you know, it doesn't take much uh, it, it doesn't take a lot of thought to realize that there's probably a vast difference between the way we think about the world and the way ancient people think about the world. And, and our goal can't be to become ancient people. Um, it, it, but, but sometimes we get that sense that, you know, we want whatever the worldview of the, the Bible is should be our worldview. And, and there's a truth in that, right, that the Bible needs to shape our worldview but we, but we can't stop being modern people um, to, to embrace ancient cosmology or ancient worldviews. So I guess like the, the study of ancient cosmology or trying to wrap our heads around how people thousands of years ago thought about the universe definitely would help us start to approach how uh, something was written at that time and to whom it was written in a very different way. Um, how do you start to gather a bit of, you know, because there's this sense sometimes, well, I, I shouldn't even read the Bible. I'm just going to screw it up. Like, how do you start to uh, gather a little bit of confidence that you're getting a sense of what people, how people saw the world back then? Like, where do you go for that? Like, how do you even do that? 
Yeah, that that's that's a good question, and it and it's one that um, I, I often feel the weight of that, you know, because as someone who comes as the expert, quote unquote, you know, there's an assumed I've I've spent a lot of years studying this, and now tell us how to read the Bible, whereas we want everybody to everybody to be able to read the Bible themselves. Um, and I don't, we don't want to take the Bible out of the hands of people, right? We want to make the Bible more accessible, not less accessible. Um, but I, I think, the, you know, the, the reality is, um, you know, the Bible has always been taught rather than read. That the, the, the first and primary use of the Bible has been to teach it. Um, you know, in the Old Testament, it's parents make sure you teach your kids these stories and these commands and who we are because our you know who we are is tied to these stories and these commands so parents had to do that because most people couldn't read and 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 even if they could read they would not have access to scripture Um, you know scripture was not readily available and a very very small minority of people would have been able to read Um, if, if we think about this you know it's only been in the last several hundred years that the Bible has become accessible and readable for, for your average person in the church. Um, and it's always been taught. We've always had people. And, you know, the Bible talks about gifting. Uh, we have teachers and preachers as a gift. And I, and I don't think in our desire to put the Bible and make it accessible to everybody, we can not take serious the importance of having teachers and preachers that will help us understand what the Bible is, is, is saying and, and help us to understand it and, and to avoid some of the, the, the dangers that, that, we can, uh, that can come from reading it in an uninformed way. No, I think, I think that's really helpful and uh, wondered in, in terms of being a bit informed about how we think about ancient cosmology um, and may, maybe a lens to look through. I don't know if that's helpful, but um, are there other ancient cosmology kind of pictures that help us determine how sort of a Hebrew audience might have been thinking? Or how do we start to gather a bit of a, uh, a, shape, a, a bit of a paradigm, I guess, for looking at those different ways of seeing uh, cosmology at that time? Right. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, and I, you know, I've got a longer answer and a shorter answer is I, I think, you know, we need to have some, some good guides that will help us. And again, you know, I'll bring up John Walt because you're familiar with that. And John Walton is one of the, one of the guides in my life because I, I, I trust him and, and I learn much from him. And we need to have some guides that are, that are helpful in this. You know, it's, 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 it's interesting. You know, I teach a Bible backgrounds class here, and Jess, you were in it. Um, Jess, yes, it's one of the first tiers conversations. Um, and, and one of the things that we, we talk about in there is, you know, 200 years ago, um, we knew almost nothing about the ancient world of the Bible outside of what the Bible told us. Um, we, we really weren't doing any archaeology or biblical archaeology, if, if we dare to call it that. But we, we weren't doing archaeology. We didn't have texts. 
whatever ancient texts we had, we couldn't read because people didn't, you know, it's only 200 years ago that we learned how to read hieroglyphics um, or, or any of these ancient languages. Um, and so in the, in the last 200 years, you, you know, there's just been this intense interest in archaeology, and we've dug up so much. You know, we know where ancient places are, where, you know, many of those biblical places are being excavated. We have the, the material culture from these places, and we have hundreds of thousands of texts that we didn't have 200 years ago. Um, like hundreds of thousands. We've got millions of fragments of texts. Like it's, it's, it's unbelievable. And they just keep coming in. And so, you know, now we have people that are, re- you know, this is their whole life is to read these texts and study them. And so we've, we've, we've gained so much understanding from the, about the ancient world. And, and we have creation texts from other people, others, other people groups. We have flood texts from other people groups. We have law texts from other people groups. We have wisdom texts. We have texts that are like Job probing suffering. We have Psalms. Um, you know, we've realized that all of the stuff in our Bible isn't that unique. That might have been the first tier for you, Jess, is that moment. Because we, we, we grew up thinking this Bible is this special book that kind of dropped from heaven um, and then you realize that, okay, it's not quite that. Um, and I have no desire to take away anybody's confidence in the Bible or the idea that it's a special book, it's inspired, it's a word of God, it's special. But we realize that, that the, the word of God comes to us in a lot of ways that, that look a lot or very similar to what's happening in other ancient cultures. Other ancient cultures are practicing sacrifice. They're building temples. They have priests. They have prophets. They're writing psalms. Um, they're telling stories about floods and creation. Um, and so some of that's hard to, to hear, but it also just it, it, it sheds tremendous new light upon what's going on in the Bible and, and how should we read it and how should we interpret it. And I get super excited about that. And totally. Need to, need to contain myself, but you could, not everybody gets so excited well, about that. Well, you can see all of a sudden that it's like, this isn't just like, let's read one version of this and be mystified by its uniquenesses. Then if, if we're not reading for unique experiences from Scripture, as far as like how the content is being delivered, then our shi- then all of a sudden we're invited to shift to read it from a different standpoint. Which can you can you hear my question coming? Like so, what would the if you're not reading it, looking at it as something that's super unique as far as how it's being delivered, then then where is the the guts of why we read something that ancient, mm-hmm. especially something that we call authoritative and inspired? Yeah, that, that that's a that's a great question and it's a great big question and and we're not gonna settle that here. But I but I think that the the, 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 the proper answer and the, the real answer that what is unique in the Old Testament um, is God, is, is Yahweh, is, is the God who is revealed as the creator of heaven and earth, um, the God who is sovereign above all people, all nations. And, and, and then we get to the New Testament, and what, what does the New Testament do? It says Jesus, right? So, you know, the Bible is, is testimony. It's inspired testimony. It's trustworthy testimony that it will lead us to 
Yahweh and the New Testament will lead us to Jesus. That's what it intends to do. And, and everything in our faith hangs on that question. Is Jesus, you know, the, the Son of God? Um, is Yahweh the, the creator of heaven and earth? And is he trustworthy with our lives? So, so the scriptures are pointing us to that. They're, they're pointing us away from, you know, we have the Babylonian creation text, if we want to call it that. Um, if, if we get into talking about that, we're, you know, it's, it's, it's really saying that Marduk is, you know, the, the, the creator of heaven and earth and is to be worshipped. Um, and then we have the Bible, which is saying it's, it's Yahweh. Um, and, and we believe the Bible's inspired and trustworthy because it's pointing us not to Marduk, but to Yahweh. It's pointing us to Jesus, and that's the centerpiece of our faith, and, and uh, that's the, the hill to die on in all of these pieces. So I don't know, does that, no, that's does that re- answer really all, helpful, I- and it feels like a parallel to kind of like there's all kinds of things in modern life that lots of people that don't follow Jesus do that look very similar, but what changes them is they kind of are sanctified in the sense of our motive or kind of like what we're connecting it to. And so it just, it, I, I kind of, I like making that link that I, there may be people around me doing things that are very similar to what I'm doing it, but in what name or in kind of in what's, what, what's the reason behind it? Um, you know, I asked I ask class this when we, we talk about, you know, the Old Testament laws. As we, you know, I'll, I'll lay out some of the Old Testament laws with, you know, the laws of Hammurabi, um, for instance, right? Or we have some Assyrian laws, but these these old Babylonian laws. And, you know, students are often quite shocked by how similar these are. And and that's like, oh, wow, is the Bible really unique? And I'm like, well, well, what did you expect? And, I, you know, I, my illustration is always if, if you know, if, if Christians could have, you know, the freedom to say, here, whatever you want, write down the laws for Canada. What would they, you know, whatever you want to be law, Christians, you can write it. What would God want? And and once we're done that, compare them to the laws that we have, and how different would they be? You know, if you start pressing into the laws of Canada, how radically different would, you know, many of our laws would be the same laws because we rep- we recognize that the laws that our country is trying to make are about justice and and, and fairness and and so is the Old Testament laws are about justice and, and fairness um, and so we shouldn't expect you know this dramatic difference um, so you say yeah there's there's non-Christian people that live you know lives that are exemplary would be exemplary for Christian people and uh, that's that's all around us. So, you know, what's the uniqueness then of Christians? And it comes down to, to Jesus and, you know, motives, as you say. And, and I think the same thing is going on in, in Scripture. I'm Jessica Stefik here with Greg Elford. And today, the Read podcast is talking together with Jerry Pauls, a professor of theology and Old Testament at Columbia Bible College. Today, we're talking about the opening lines of Scripture and how a rereading of our creation story might open up for some more nuance and deeper appreciation. I'd love to hear just about some of the uniqueness in Genesis, like 
what um, besides pointing us to this Yahweh who um, we've been talking about earlier, um, another name for God, what is unique about Genesis? What is it trying to tell us that maybe some of the other ancient Near Eastern cosmology stories kind of miss out on? Right. Yeah, good, good question. Um, you know, in, in, in the academic world, you know, in the last 200 years, where you start getting these comparative texts, you know, the academic world loves to find the similarities, and often it's to discredit the uniqueness of the Bible, right? Um, and, uh, you know, but, but, you know, as a matter of integrity, we need to look at where, where are they similar and where are they different, right? Because both are very important. And, and, and as people of, of faith who recognize these as Scripture, we, we definitely want to see the, the uniqueness and you know, as for, as, for as much as I could go on about the similarities, there's, there's really important um, differences. Um, and, and, you know, one of, just, I'm just thinking which, which examples I should give. Um, the, the creation of humans, for instance. Um, you know, we have several texts where humans are created. And uh, they're typically created from, you know, a dirt or mud or clay, which, which obviously we can see a, a parallel in the Bible where we're created from the, the dirt. Um, and then, you know, God breathes the breath of life into us. Um, but they're created from dirt or mud or clay, and then they'll usually be mixed in with, with the, the sweat or the, the blood of the gods. Um, and, and they're created for a, a strictly utilitarian purpose, the gods are tired of doing the work because the gods are perennially lazy and they want to rest. Um, and, and so they create humans to do the work. And, uh, you know, we have several flood stories, um, several significant flood stories. There's, there's many flood stories, but several that, are, that are, have some parallels with ours and, you know, the, the gods decide they're going to destroy humanity because um, they're annoyed. The humans are overpopulating and they're noisy and they're disturbing our rest. Um, I might, you know, maybe when Amelia comes home this week and, <laughs> and, and she's noisy, I might get, my rest might get disturbed. Kids do that, right? So, so they create humans and then they're, they're annoyed because there's too many, they're too noisy and we can't sleep. So let's get rid of them, and you know we'll send a plague that doesn't work, or we'll we'll uh, we'll we'll try different things, and then they say let's flood them out. We got to get rid of them, and so they send a flood, and and you know there's a boat story, an ark story, and uh, which is which is very intriguing, um, and then they get in, into the story, uh, and and all of a sudden the gods are like, what are we doing? Like, who's going to do our work? Like, what have we done? Like this is the, the this is the way these gods are flippant and and uh, not always the smartest. Um, what have we done? Why we've destroyed we destroyed our workforce? Who's going to feed us? Who's going to bring sacrifices to us and feed us? And so they're very upset. But you know, one of the gods had had betrayed the others and gone had told the plan for a flood to um, Atrahasis or, or, or Utnapishtim in in the other flood story. Um, and that god becomes a bit of a hero because he's a god of wisdom, Ea. Um, so anyways, the, the, they find out that, oh, the humans aren't all gone, and all of a sudden they're very happy. And when you know, this hero comes out of the boat and they offer a sacrifice, which again we find Noah doing, the gods are swarming around the sacrifice like, like flies, it says, right? Like they're just 
they want to eat and now he's offering them food so you know you just you look at that and you're like well what are humans um they mean nothing to the gods except you know that they're, they're going to do their work and they're going to feed them they're they're slaves um, they're slaves to the to the gods and uh, you look at that and compare it with with the bible and how god is attached to humans and creates them in his image and bestows upon them glory and entrusts them with you know psalm 8 you know what is man that you're mindful of him and you know that you you make him just a little lower than the heavenly beings and crown him with honor and glory and entrust him with ruling over you know the birds of the air and the fish of the sea and creatures that roam on the ground so you just see wow humans aren't just slaves created to do the work and you see god grieving you see god's heart being grieved by humans in these texts um you see this very you know human-like picture of god who's who's sad by what humans have done not annoyed because you're you're keeping my you're bothering my sleep so those are those aren't just little pieces there's no other text that depict god as being um deeply and passionately committed to his creatures and to his creation for all of these other stories that you know the, the creation and creatures just serve their interests and they're continually fighting amongst each other to you know serve their interests so you know that's that's a that's a massive departure and how do you how do you explain that in the ancient and eastern context right it's unique and it, it paints god in uh you know a, a a very unique way that leads us to jesus and you know this god who's willing to die on a cross for us because of his love for us yeah i was thinking to myself ironically that god sounds a lot like kind of a christ figure you know almost <laughs> like weird yeah. yeah it's like some foreshadowing <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the the deep connection between god and humans that you know in the old testament humans are created in the image of god that we are like god in some core profound way we don't we don't we're leery about saying those kinds of things in our churches because we're not like God. But the Old Testament wants to say we are like God, you know, in it, created in his likeness, in his image, as the text says, image and likeness. And then you get to the New Testament, and God is, uh, you know, I'll use created in parentheses here, but God is created in our image. He becomes like us in, in Jesus. He's born as a baby, a vulnerable baby who needs to be fed and changed and cared for um it, it's it's a, a a story that's unlike any other story but but that's you know god is like us in the new testament and in jesus we beheld his glory so so yeah the deep personal sorry i'm, I'm going on about this because you know god in the old testament has a rough time today you know people mm -hmm. feel that god is violent and angry and and uh, always bringing judgment, um, and we were not attentive to these um, very tender uh, kind of inner, you know, these 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 stories that allow us to see the inner turmoil of God. Um, he doesn't bring judgment because he is annoyed or wants to bring judgment. He does it, um, you know, for very different reasons than that. It's always redemptive. 
that I think is like a reason for us to come back and chat with you because I'm sure there's a zillion questions we'd love to have your perspective on on judgment in the Old Testament or violence in the Old Testament. Um, when I hear you talk about those texts uh, and like, and I hear Jess's sort of tearful response as maybe a freshman in Bible college, I, I think it taps into a discomfort that people have. Like there's this temptation either to, it, it, it might be laziness at our worst where we say, oh, I just don't want to even engage because then I'm going to have to think about some stuff and I don't really want to do that. Or maybe from a more noble place, there's this sense of protectionism that, that comes up in us where we think to ourselves, oh my goodness, like this, if I go down this road, I don't know if it's wise because I might find myself in some dangerous territory. And I certainly feel that that can be similar. And this kind of is similar to science in that the way that we're discovering these ancient texts and calling them ancient texts and dating them and so on and so forth is scientific discovery. And yet science sort of stretches into all kinds of different branches that produce that same feeling, I think, for many Christians or people that are reading the Bible, of, of insecurity, of saying, okay, so this is threatening the way that I look at this. Um, I'm sure you must run into that with students. Can you help us understand maybe where bias comes from and how, uh, when, when it's good to be protectionist and when there's room for us to grow or reread, as you said, the word for the day, like that posture of being open to things that aren't dangerous or that aren't um, up departing from something that would be helpful, I guess. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's, that's, there's a lot of questions yeah, packed into that. And, that. and, and, and it's, it's hard for me because this is, this is a sweet spot for me as, um, you know, and this is, you're articulating what I think every first year student goes through in my classes and, and other classes, not just mine, but, um, let me, let me just back up a little bit. I think. I think you know many people in our faith traditions grow up with some fear and anxiety. Um, you know, we often it's towards science. Um, we have this tremendous fear and anxiety, and and you know we put up walls. Um, evolution's a dirty word, and it's a dangerous word, and we got to keep our kids from that. And uh, liberals are, you know, as a, as a, that's a dirty word to be a liberal. And you've got to be wary of anybody that reads Genesis 1 differently. And, and, and we, we, we do that a lot. And we grow up with a lot of anxiety and, and fear. And, and sometimes it works to keep people in line and, you know, in our, our particular strand of, of the faith. There's a lot of strands in the Christian faith, um, but other times it works against it because a lot of those students then will go to college um, at UFV or any secular college and take their first year biology course and say, I'm sorry, this makes sense. If it's going to be the Bible or evolution and biology and science, I have to choose science, and then they leave. And, and that saddens my heart immensely because we set up the equation for them that it's either this or that, and, and, and it creates tremendous anxiety. It's, it's anxiety about, I've got to be careful what I hear about science, 
And it's also now I've got to be careful about what I hear about the Bible. And people are very anxious about it. So it's, it's, I'm, I'm always amazed at how easy it is to create anxious moments in a class. Uh, my, my first um, class in Christian theology, which is an introductory course, so all first years take it, you know, I, I asked students how many different Christian, Christian denominations are there in the world. And uh, I, 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 you know, they guessed for a bit, and I put on the board that it's, well, it was 33,000, but this was like 15 years ago. I think it's closer to 40,000 denominations. 40,000. Uh, you know, I, I, I teach at a Mennonite school. You're at a Methodist church. Well, what's the difference between a Methodist and a Mennonite? Well, theology is, and we read the Bible different in some places, in some ways. That means there's 38,000 different, not churches, but groups of churches, and they all have different beliefs in some way, and they read the Bible differently in some way, and it's like, well, well who's right? Um, well, of course, my, I am. <laughs> yeah, right. Us Mennonites are right, of course, or, you know. Uh, well, it, it, there's, a, there's a subjectivity, and it's like if, if we're just going to grow up being tremendously afraid of everybody outside, well, don't go near those Methodists because who knows what's going to happen. And don't go, you know, those Pentecostals, they're going to have you speaking in tongues and doing all these things that the Bible talks about all over the place. But um, I'm being, I don't know what I'm being. Figure out whether you keep that. Um, oh, we'll keep that. Oh, yeah. that's a good moment. Good Methodist moment. Yeah. Okay. And, uh, you, you know, so you, you realize that, okay, well, all of us are reading the Bible. We're all committed to Jesus, right? Um, you know, you love Jesus every bit as much as I love Jesus, I'm sure. You know, Methodists love Jesus, and Mennonites love Jesus, and Anglicans love Jesus, and Catholics love Jesus, and, and it's like, we, we can't just sit down in our own little echo chamber and convince ourselves that we hold the corner on truth, and our reading of Scripture is the only reading of Scripture, and, you know, our understanding of creation is the only way to approach creation, so everybody that says anything different isn't, you know, we can't listen to that because it's dangerous. This is where I say, well, no, let's let's reread. Let's this is what you, you guys are doing. The re, I think, is yeah. Let's let's push a little bit outside of our streams. I'm going a little off tangent, but but this question becomes so important that we, you know, I I see this for in my my class, this Christian theology class. For some students, it's this is just a anxiety moment. I've had students leave that class and withdraw from the course. And I'm like, what did I say? Did you not realize there's different churches on every corner in our town? And did you not ever think that they believe some different things? And it's like, I'm just pointing out what is self-evident, yeah. I think. And it creates anxiety for people. And thinking, okay, we need to, we need to give ourselves the space to, to explore and have dialogue because I think, you know, Methodists and Mennonites together are closer to the truth than either of us alone. Yeah. Um, and, 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 and being able to do that. So um, some students, this is just the greatest class ever because you've just articulated what I've always felt and never had the space in my church or 
upbringing to, to, to say or to talk about. Um, and so, you know, my class, I try to create space to let's acknowledge we differ on, you know, some people in the class will be reading Genesis 1 literally, Earth was created 6,000 years ago, and others will be reading it in different ways that embrace evolution. We both love Jesus, we both love Scripture, but we read it differently. We're not all right, but I'm not saying that truth solved is relative, but I'm saying we're all trying to pursue the truth. Are there, uh, yeah, I appreciate the, the flexibility there and the, and the openness, and just to explore that from the other side, like of trying to find some things that can be stable enough that they're orthodox, kind of, or like, is there such a thing as orthodoxy, or would 20,000 of the denominations believe in one orthodoxy and the other believe in the other, you know, or... I guess it's just there's an, there's an equal anxiety sometimes when you can't ever sink your teeth into something because you're always nervous you're picking the wrong thing, you know? Yeah, I, I think, you know, what is orthodoxy? What is, well, we're, not, we're all going to define it differently, right? Who gets to define orthodoxy, right? I mean, what Catholics and Protestants, I mean, we've had a pretty significant difference. Um, are Catholics out of, uh, or are they unorthodox? Many Protestants would say that. Are Protestants? Many Catholics would say that. So it, it's, it's difficult. I, I don't want it to be just this complete and utter subjectivity, um, but it raises the importance of we, we need to be reading the text together. I think the best place to read the text is with people that read it differently than you. Otherwise, you're just going to go and find exactly what you already knew was there. Right? And... Um, you know, we're committed to Jesus. I think that's, orth- that's, that's a baseline, that Jesus is, you know, God incarnate, and Jesus is the Savior of the world. Um, we're committed to the Scriptures as an authoritative word from God. Um, and I look at it, if, if we're committed to those things, there's nothing that I enjoy more than sitting down and having it a, a, a humble, open conversation about Jesus and the Bible. Um, you know, you said earlier, uh, you know, the, the complexities of it. Uh, there's, there's a push today of people that, and, and I get it, that they don't want to have to have these deep, complicated conversations and thoughts. And not everybody's wired like I'm wired, or maybe you're wired, or just as wired. I, I get that. I've, I've got people in my home that aren't, and it's been good for me. My kids don't love it. And, I, and, it, and I'm, you know, I, I had to come to terms with that, but I'm <laughs> thankful for that because I realize I'm not the norm, um, nor do I ever want to be the norm. I think one of me, in all sorts of reasons, is enough. But, um, but, but you know, the, the response is I just want to love Jesus which is great, but loving Jesus is complicated, right? I mean, I, you know, I, I'm sure we all look at the world and see some of the things that people do in the name of Jesus, and we, and we kind of cringe. And maybe mm-hmm. some of the things that I do mm-hmm. make people kind of cringe. Um, loving Jesus in our world is not a simple black and white piece. It, it's complicated because life's complicated which means we can't just sit back and just love Jesus. We have to talk about and press into 
what does that mean? What does discipleship look like? And and that it necessitates some deeper conversations um, because discipleship isn't just, you know, what I'm going to eat or do today. It's also about um, what I'm going to do with, with gender and sexuality issues. Those are complicated. Those are big. What am I going to do with science issues? Loving Jesus means I, I have to figure out what I'm going to do with, with, with science. And, and those, you know, we're back at, at those conversations. So. Thank you for listening, and a special thanks to Jerry Pauls for his time and knowledge. Thank you to our silent sponsor and our very supportive church community, and of course, young Obi Alford for putting together the music that backs our voices. Join us again next week when the re-podcast continues in our two-part conversation with Jerry Pauls on the topic of Genesis 1. This has been episode 9 of the re-podcast, the prefix that hopes for more than we had before.